Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of God. We've been saying that the gospel ends snobbiness, the gospel ends jealousy, the gospel is the end of comparisons. And the Apostle Paul says that when that happens among a community, it's the working of God's mighty strength. And it's demonstrated when people who are very different from each other share in the same grace of God because both are sinners, both need to be reconciled to the Father, both need Jesus, and uh, they share in the same grace of God in Jesus. It's a supernatural thing. But then Paul doesn't stop there. Last week, verse 11 to 18, everything that we addressed last week, we talked about oneness. We talked about building a genuine gospel community. We talked about reconciling people who are very different from each other. And then he marvelously, the Apostle Paul, brings everything down to verse 18. And this is where we're going to get our three points. He says, for through him, both have access to the Father and uh, by one spirit. In other words, a Christian life begins with intimacy with the Father, access. Everything else you look for in the church, everything else you look for in Christian community, everything else you look for is a byproduct of that intimacy that we have with God. So getting in with God, getting in, access, that's primary. And the reason why I'm saying this, it's kind of obvious. A lot of people say, you know, I'm a Christian And I'm a Christian because I have peace. I'm a Christian because I feel comfort. I'm a Christian because now I have meaning in life. Now I have purpose in life. I'm a Christian because I, I found good community. And the thing is, all of those things, even those things, are secondary. The primary reason that we know that we're Christians is we have intimacy with God. We have access. You know him. You enjoy him. You delight in him. He is the center of your life, the motivational center. That means that I, everything that I do, the motives for everything I do is driven by my relationship, the intimacy. That means to the degree that I'm intimate with the Father, I will respond to things out of that intimacy. I will live out my life as a response to that intimacy. And the Apostle Paul, he brings the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit into this teaching about access. So there's three points. The first, you got to talk about the primary, intimacy with the Father. 
access. Second, it's through the Son. Lastly, it's by the Spirit. Verse 18, we're going to bring the whole thing down to that one verse. Intimacy with the Father, access through the Son, by the Spirit. First, we're going to look at intimacy with the Father. Verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, we both, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, people who are very different from each other, we have access to the Father. That Greek word, access, it refers to meeting somebody, a very important person. Tell you something about myself. I'm a big fan of movies. If you don't know me well, I'm a very, very big fan of movies. I watch a lot of movies. I probably watch as many movies as I read books. And when I first came to Philadelphia, it was a new city to me. I I was raised here in Philadelphia, but when I came back to the city after 11 years, it was a new city, a whole new city. Philadelphia has changed a lot. And I felt like a stranger in the city. And so the first group of friends that I made were my coworkers. I made a lot of friends who were coworkers. And they were athletes at one point. They, they played a lot of sports. And they knew that I played a lot of basketball. And one day, one of my closest coworkers came to me, uh, right, a friend of mine. He said, he said, you know, do you want to play basketball with a friend of mine tonight? Now, the thing is, this friend is one of the most famous directors in Hollywood. He wrote and directed some of the most iconic movies in our generation right now. And every week, he plays basketball with a group of friends, a very private group of friends that he grew up with because he donated a lot of money and he went to this one school. And so that school lets him use their gym every week. He rents it out on Tuesday. It's a nearby prep school, actually pretty close to here, what used to be close to here. And I was invited. I got invited. Before... I used to just watch his movies. I was in the crowd. I was in the audience. I was out there. This director is famous. He works with Oscar winners today and now. And I was invited. I was in. Every week, I get to talk trash to this director. I went out with him for drinks afterwards. He invited me to premieres for his movies. I went to his house. I met his children. I hung out with his wife been to his parties. Now before, I've never met this person in person. Now, he's got my number. I have his number. He calls me. Before, I used to wait just to watch the trailer. Now, he's, he's telling me ideas, asking me questions. What is that? access. You know, it's one thing to meet the President of the United States, but in order to have a meeting with the President, you don't just walk into the White House, right? I mean, some of you, you know, you take tours of the White House. You don't just walk in. The butler doesn't just, like, open the door like you may enter. That's, that's not what happens, right? It's another thing because you've got to set up a meeting. You've got to set up an appointment, and even that may take a lot of time, if ever, It's another thing to be a son. A son in the middle of a meeting would just burst open the doors into the Oval Office, run into the arms of his father, you see. The reality that Paul's pointing to is greater than either of those illustrations. Paul's reality is that every person 
who receives Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their King, as their Savior, has an invitation into the private quarters of the King of the universe, the Lord of creation. And he's not just invited to come in. He's not just invited to his house. He's brought into his heart. He's brought into his burdens the things that he grieves over. He's brought into his wisdom and his counsel. He's brought into his mission. We are partakers, partners, part owners of that mission. That's what that means. He lets you in. You're in. We need to be in. We we desperately desire to be in. We desperately hate being left out. The more valuable the circle is to you, the greater there's a fear of being left out. That's why there's jealousy. That's why there's arrogance. That's why the snobbiness is there. Now, when you encounter a famous person, uh, most of us probably at some point have encountered someone at least mildly famous. When you encounter a famous person, you never keep it to yourself. What do you do? The first thing you do, right, is you got to share about it, right? We share about it because we all want to feel in. We all want to feel valuable. We all want to feel important. It's almost as if you encounter that famous person, it's almost as if that person's honor, that person's power, that person's glory, that person's fame almost transfers to you when that person says to you, you're in. I'm letting you in. It's very important. It's very important. Why? Because think about the most Most of our young social pathologies today, think about probably all young social pathologies today, teenage sex, teenage suicide, first-time alcohol abuse, first-time drug use. Why? Statistics will show you this. Why? It always begins with a desire to be in. And it's not just youth. It's adults. It's not just secular professions. It's mine too. We all want to be in. We absolutely want in with certain types of people. We're desperate for this. We'll do anything for this. It's an addiction. Because when you get in, the reason why I say it's an addiction, when you get in, it feels good. It's like a fix. There's a high that comes with that. But then there's the disappointment. And there's always disappointment. They disappoint you. You disappoint them. There's a crash. And then what happens is it turns into this cycle of feedback loop. You're desperate then to get in again. You want to do anything to get in. And the cost to getting in increases. The cost to experiencing that high, the cost to getting that fix increases. It's gonna, you're going to change the way you look, change the way you act, t- change the way you, what you sacrifice. You may sacrifice your purity. You will sacrifice your time, anything for that intimacy, You will do whatever you can to get into that particular group, that certain neighborhood, just to get in, to be respected by certain types of people. It's going to make you feel so much more acceptable. It's going to then make you feel valuable. It's going to give you a sense of worth. The fact is, the root word of acceptance is what? Access. The cost is high. And you're going to pay a great cost. You're going to work very, very hard. You're going to sacrifice a lot. And yet at any given moment, you will never know where you stand. You will never have the assurance that you're actually in. All this, all of this because we need access. 
And the only way it's not going to run your life, the only way it's not going to ruin your life is if you fill that need with one thing, the one thing that's truly going to satisfy that, the only circle that truly matters, that's truly meaningful, that's truly going to last, and that's the circle of the Godhead, the Trinity. Verse 18, we have access. We're in. That's the only thing that will truly satisfy your soul to the degree that you believe that. You can live that. You will experience that. It's the only circle that, that's meaningful, that's going to last. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone lets me in, I will come in. I will eat with him. Ancient times to eat. In ancient times to eat is to be intimate with that person. Access. Luke chapter 19, you have the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. That means that without going into the details of what a tax collector is, kind of like a modern-day drug dealer type. Those are the types of people that these men hung out with. But the thing is, they were betraying their own people because they were collecting money and practically stealing because they were charging higher rates to collect these taxes so they could skim off the top. And they could take it for themselves. They were betraying their own people. They were looked down on by the religious, looked down on by other people. And this Zacchaeus, he wanted to meet Jesus. And so what does he do? He's got a problem. He's short. So what he does is he climbs up this tree, this sycamore tree, knowing that Jesus is going to come by. And when Jesus arrives, what does he say? Of all the people that he could have sought out, he goes to Zacchaeus at the tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down from this tree because I must stay at your house tonight. I must stay with you. Come down from the tree because one day he will go up on the tree. Come down from the tree, he says. The people standing around, they're indignant. Jesus, this man is gone to be the guest of sinners and they're mocking In other words, why does Zacchaeus, why does he get access, that sinner? Why does he get that kind of intimacy? And Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. In other words, Zacchaeus, you're in. Salvation has come in. You're in. What's access? Access is knowing God, knowing God. John chapter 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true and living God. Access is to know, to be intimate with God, to be intimate with Jesus. And to be intimate with Jesus is to know him eternally, and that is to have eternal life. It's got to be more than just having informational knowledge about Jesus It's got to be much more deep than that, much more personal than that. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells this very quick parable. He says, many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And Jesus says, you may know my name, but you never knew me. Depart from me. I never knew you. I'm paraphrasing. That's what he says. He doesn't say, well, oh my gosh, I had this list and I forgot. That's right. You guys were out there doing all this stuff for me. Let me write your name in the book. That's not what he says. That's not what he's saying. Right? Clearly, 
clearly they do know him informationally. They did know him. They talked a lot about him. What Jesus is saying is, but you were never intimate with me. Remember Titanic? Everybody saw Titanic, right? You got Cal Hockley, this wealthy, kind of arrogant, well, very arrogant person, very wealthy. And his bodyguard, uh, he frames the protagonist of the movie, Jack Dawson. He, he frames him by slipping this rare diamond into the, the heart of the ocean, into the jacket pocket of, of Jack Dawson. And he gets caught for robbing, for stealing this diamond. And so they handcuff him to the Titanic. And the Titanic starts to sink. And uh, Rose comes to rescue him, right? Remember that scene? And when they meet, she's, uh, she's trying to figure it out. And, and she's about to take that axe, right? And, and you know, chop the, get free him from, uh, from the handcuffs. And he goes, wait, wait, wait. How did you find out that I didn't do it? And what does she say? Because mainly what he's saying is, what new information did you hear? What new news did you receive? And her response is what? I already knew. I already knew. In other words, she wasn't saying, I didn't have new information. I didn't have more information. What she's saying is, what I knew about you, it just became personal to me. I applied it, and it made sense. It was real. What she already knew took over her mind, took over the seeming facts, the details, took over reason, and it made more sense, not less sense, right? That would be foolish. It made more sense out of the reality. It affected her actions, affected her will, it affected her love, increased her love. Every faculty, body, and soul engaged, and it shaped her. You know what worship is? Worship is when every faculty of your body and soul are engaged. Your mind, your will, your emotions, it becomes engaged and centered around one object, one person. That's the kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about. A knowing that comes with worship. You know what worship means? Worship is holding up something of supreme worth, supreme value. And when you hold something up of supreme worth and supreme value to the degree that it actually changes your life, shapes you, shapes how you think, what, how you perceive things, how you behave, how you act, how you respond to suffering. It's why the word, the very word worship, worship is derived from the Latin phrase worth shape. Paul says, I pray that you may know his incomparably great power together, access. That you may know the incomparably great power of God, the working of his mighty strength in bringing people who are very different together to serve and to love one another despite and through their differences. That they don't just overlook the differences, they embrace the differences 
Because through the differences, there is a special and unique oneness. And that is a very supernatural thing. He says, this is the working of God's mighty strength. And I hope you will know this. I hope that your intimacy with God, because he doesn't stop there. He begins with, I pray that you will know him more. And then he says, I pray that you will know the incomparably great power of the outworking of his mighty strength. Access, that you may know him and know his power. Why does he say, I pray that you will know this? It's because Paul knows it's possible because he was one of them. It was possible to have a lot of information about Jesus, a lot of knowledge about God, a lot of scriptural teaching. Paul was a teacher of teachers. He understands that, and yet he did not know him intimately. And not knowing, knowing the details, and not knowing Jesus intimately made him very resentful and angry. That could be you. It certainly was me. And if it could be me, and if it could be Paul, then it can definitely be you right now. In this kind of community where you have a lot of information, a lot of knowledge about God, and you pride yourselves in retaining knowledge, you're always looking to hear that one thing that's going to be like, whoa. But has that knowledge become personal to you in a way that it has shaped you? Has that knowledge renewed you? made you new? Do you know God? I'm going to apply this very quickly. A lot of people here, they believe that God is good. If you ask them, do you believe God is good? Most people here will probably tell you, I believe God is good. But do you delight in that? I know you believe it, but do you delight in it? Does that goodness shape you when you're struggling? Does he stop being good when things go wrong? What's changed? Does that goodness go away? Does that goodness come to an end? Because it's not that good then. It's not much different than you and I. A lot of people believe that God is good. Here's another thing. A lot of people come to me for counsel, and they share with me brokenness, and they share with me sadness, and they share with me guilt. They share with me anger. And they, uh, what I do is I'll, I'll share with them counsel, right? Truth. You know, it could be over text. It could be something. And I say, well, this is the reality, you know. This is truth, right? And their response to me is usually, I know. But do you get it? Because when you say, I know, but, it shows you don't know. It shows you don't get it. Because what you're really saying is, in those in three words, I know, but, right, is what? I heard this before. I grew up with this. But it hasn't shaped me. It certainly hasn't changed me. It hasn't engaged my emotions because I'm angry. It hasn't engaged my will, right, because I, I'm still behaving this way. It certainly hasn't engaged my mind because I think this way. You see, that means that you're holding something else as supreme worth and value, the center. And that, 
other thing is what's motivating you. Do you get that? It's not an information issue. What you need is not more information. At that point, I don't, I don't think it's more truth you need. You've heard it. You know it. You need intimacy. You lack intimacy, access. It's not a knowledge issue. It's a newness issue. It's not an access issue. It's a delight issue. And the only way that you can truly heal your pride and your anger and the guilt and the insecurity, well, you say it like this, to the degree that you've experienced real access to God, real intimacy with God, there's your peace. There's your joy. There's your delight. To the degree that your spiritual life, your spiritual character is dry and knowledge-based, Right? If your spiritual life, your spiritual character is dry and based on knowledge and just truth, you're going to develop, to that degree, you're going to develop a critical and authoritarian personality. No matter how gospel-driven your church is, you will be critical, you will be proud, you will be arrogant. Church for you is about power and control. Getting in with people is about power power and control, influence. Now, you can't ignore good doctrine. I mean, Metro, we certainly don't throw doctrine out the window. We definitely don't do that. We are very stingy about our, our faith and about our doctrine, what we believe. But real knowledge, the kind that changes you, is based on truth. It's based on that information. Like a good operating system. For those of you who are in comp sign, things like that, a good operating system. If you have a platform with a good operating system, you can build a very, very integrated system of programs and applications but you can't just leave the operating system by itself, right? No one just buys a computer and has nothing running on it, right? We all need at least a word processor. We need something that's good running on it that we can use that's functional, right? That data from that operating system, the data that's going back and forth between whatever you're using and the operating system, it's flowing very, very well. There's got to be this ecosystem weaving in and out, right, between the person that's using it and, and the operating system itself, right? In the same way, your spiritual character is like that. You have to have an ecosystem of information, that you're on, that you're working off of. But what you do, how you think, how you respond to things, it's got to weave in and out with that data that you know and that you're processing. It's a good processor, right? It's got to lead to faith, wisdom, repentance, character, compassion, delight, hope, love. Like any relationship, when you're on a date, it begins with what? Because you don't know the person very well. It begins with information. But when you get into an argument with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse, is it more information that you need? That information has to become personal. It has to be applied. You betrayed me. You hurt me. You knew this would hurt me. You know this. Access to the Father, intimacy with the Father, it's got to shape you. We have access. 
That's the first point. Second point, through the Son. The text says, for through him, he's talking about Jesus, for through Jesus we have access to the Father. How did I get into this director's, this famous director's weekly basketball, weekly thing that he kind of puts together? How does anyone get in with anybody who's a great leader or this famous person? Because they don't know you. They don't know you. There's no relationship. There's no intimacy to start, right? But I got in through my friend. The director knew him. The director trusted him. And because I am in with him, and the director is in with him, we're mostly, we're all Asians here, right? Transitive property. That means I am in with the director. That's what happens, right? That's what happens. If I try my, by myself to cut over, if I try myself to get in there by myself, it's very imposing. It's actually off-putting. It's very rude, right? Because really what you're saying, the message that you're sending is, I don't need anyone to introduce me. I can get in there by myself. That's very arrogant. It's very proud. And God opposes the proud, right? But who is Jesus Christ? Because you need somebody who can get you in. Who is Jesus? He is the one who stands before the Father. Verse 13. Verse 13, uh, which is right before this passage that you read. We looked at it last week. You have been brought near by the blood. And what that means is that we have gained intimacy with the Father through Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. He took our place. And the Bible says he, the Bible says he lives to intercede for us. He's constantly mediating on our behalf. He's constantly praying for us, constantly for us, constantly uh, pursuing getting us in. That's Jesus. That means that you are somebody who lives to represent you. You are someone who lives to introduce you. That's what we need. And when a friend says, you know, I think you should let Donnie in to play basketball, He's representing me. He's representing me. He's coming as me, right? It's the same thing, except he has the reputation. He has the trust. That's what's happening. He's saying, I know him, so you can know him. You trust me, and I trust him, so you can trust him. And he acts as a mediator, and so I can be let in. He's saying, you know, Donnie is in. He's in not on the basis of his trustworthiness, not on the basis of his record, not even on the basis of his reputation with you because he has no reputation with you. It's on the basis of my record. It's on the basis of my reputation. You trust me. That's how he can get in. Anyone who approaches God through Jesus has access. They are in. Through Jesus, and only through Jesus. And what that means is any other way that you try to pursue, by trying hard, by being obedient, even just by being religious. People have tried all sorts of religions, right? We live in a society today where they say there are many ways up the mountain as long as you're going up, right? When Jesus says every other road that looks like it's going up is actually going down, that's what he's actually saying. He says, enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. Wide is the gate, 
And many people are on this gate, uh, on this road that leads to death and destruction. That's what he says. We have an entire generation of people who've left the church. It's a, it's a dilemma in our society. We have an entire generation of people who have left the church because they still believe that by just trying hard, if I can just obey the Bible, God will be pleased with me. And because I haven't obeyed the Bible, God is not pleased with me. And, and they've somewhat kind of been in oppressive spiritual experiences, oppressive uh, church leaders, oppressive uh, ministries that have pretty much told them, either implicitly or explicitly, that because they are disobedient, God would never accept them, and they shouldn't come back, in a sense, unless they're obedient. And they've left the church. We lost an entire generation of people. But think about it. If you're doing that, if that's the way you think, that's you trying to introduce yourself. That's you trying to introduce yourself. You are acting as your own reference. You ever go for an interview, a job interview? You go to a job interview, the interview can go great. You're answering all the questions. One of the last things they say is, did you fill out the form that lists out references? Right? Usually you have to list two or three references. They, uh, a work history and an employment history, and they will contact or they'll hire some service to contact these references just to make sure that you check out okay. What if you list yourself as your reference? They will, they will, first of all, anybody who's done that, I can guarantee you they didn't get the job, right? Because you are not credible. You are not credible about yourself. And, uh, and, but really, it's because it says a lot about you. You're arrogant. You're insulting. If you're trying to see the president of the United States, or any famous person for that matter, and you use yourself as a reference, see what happens. You'll probably get tackled. You'll probably get hauled off to jail. You might even get killed, depending on who it is you're trying to get in with. It's the same thing with the father. Anyone who tries to get access on their own will die. That's what happens. There are only two approaches. Only two approaches. You can introduce yourself and die, or you can go through Jesus who introduces you, and you'll get access. It happens through the son. Access to the father, intimacy. The intimacy happens through the Son. And lastly, it happens by the Spirit. Tim Keller, um, you know, comes up with these kind of catchy one-liners, right? He says, the Son bought you, but the Spirit brought you. That's pretty much it. We could probably end it right there, but of course I'm not going to. The Son bought you, but the Spirit brought you. In other words, uh, the Holy Spirit applies that truth to you. You hear something. You might have heard it many times over in your life, and then one day you hear it, and it becomes personal. That's the Holy Spirit bringing you. Opens your heart to see it again. The pages, the words in the pages disappear, and you see a mirror to your soul. And all of a sudden you say, this is about me, and it breaks me. And I need Jesus in my life. That's the Holy Spirit bringing you. The Holy Spirit melts you. That information that you have, all that information, the Holy Spirit melts you in that truth with the Word. The Word is the information. In ancient times, uh, no, uh, there were no envelopes, right? Um, 
there were no pre-glued envelopes, right? What you did was you took a letter, you wrote your letter, you kind of folded it over like that, trifold, right? And then what you did was uh, you needed wax. Essentially, you needed wax. Uh, and uh, the wax, uh, you, you hold the wax to a flame. The wax would drip onto that area where the crease is, right? And then as that wax, that wax is soft, so what you do is you take a signet ring, which is your symbol. It's like your return address in a way, and you pressed it in. That's how you knew that that envelope, right, was sealed, right? So you have uh, the seal, right, the ring. Uh, that's the information, right? And you have the flame, and you have the wax, if you try to apply the seal to the wax without the flame, if you try to take that ring and press it into the wax and there's no flame, what happens? It might make some marks. Some superficial changes will be there, right? There'll be some abrasions, right? You might even see some imprints there, right? But the wax is hard. The wax is hardened. But if that wax is softened, if that wax is melted, and then you impress that word, it changes the image of that wax. Your heart is that wax. The seal is the word. And if you impress the power of God, the word of God, the seal, without the flame, what happens is there may be some superficial impressions. There may be some outward change for a little while, but you're hardened. You're hardened. So there may be some changes on the outside, but you're hardened. You're not shaped. You're not changed. But when the Holy Spirit, which is the flame, is present, and you see the power of God, the word of God, you're experiencing that, there's the change. That seal gets pressed into a soft heart. There's the change. The Holy Spirit melts your heart. The words will shape your heart. Are you fearful? Are you fearful? God's Holy Spirit will develop courage in you. Are you anxious? Are you anxious? You will learn about the goodness of God. You'll hear about the goodness of God. And if your heart is soft, it will build you into a person of peace. Are you guilty? Do you feel guilty, shame? You'll learn about the gospel. And if your heart is soft, there's no pride there. If your heart is soft, then there's comfort and there's forgiveness and there's joy, and you can trust it because that seal we pressed into your soul, and it will change you forever. You will bear that image. Are you proud? If the Holy Spirit, if that flame is coming near, you will read about the holiness of God, and it will humble you to see your own sin. There's the change. Through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, now, people say, I want that, but it's not happening in my life. Here's why it's not happening. It's through Jesus, by the Spirit, you see. When I grew up in a church, they used to say, it's not happening. You've got to pray. You need to pray. You need the Word. You need to pray harder, right? Your faith is small. That's why, right? And you feel dejected because you pray and you, you do this. I mean, I was like in youth group, right? But you pray and it's not working, we lost a generation of people because they were just impressing the seal, which is good. It's a good word. They were impressing the seal. 
not recognizing that the wax was hard. You see? <clears throat> the Spirit applies the gospel to you. The Spirit opens your heart to get it and brings you through the Son. The Spirit applies that reference of Jesus so that you see a need for Jesus and you see that he paid it all and now your life is hid with Christ on high. Jesus Christ becomes your reference. Jesus Christ becomes your introduction. Jesus Christ intercedes for you. First John chapter 1, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and kind and forgetful to see your sins. That's not what it says. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. You need a just God. You don't need a God that's just going to let everything go. You need a just God. If you had a God that just lets everything go, that means evil wins. Think about all the things you've endured in your life, all the cruelty and sometimes uh, injustices that you've experienced that will never be accounted for if God just lets things go. You need a God that's never going to let anything go. Trust me, I know. Trust me, I know. I've experienced injustices in my life that will never be accounted for. You need a God who is just. But it also means you then will be judged. Your sins, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your heart, the hardness of your heart will be judged. Your corrosion, the blaming, the excuses, the arrogance, the jealousy, the lies, the comparisons, the brokenness. Who can stand? And then you have Jesus. Jesus Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. He suffered the ultimate penalty for our sins, and he died. The wrath of God was poured out on him. He lived a perfect life, died the perfect death for his people. And now he stands before the throne of God, the judge, and he says what? Father, I died in his place. I died in his place. And because you are just, you would never punish him again for, the, for what I have already paid for. You are just God. And because I paid for his sins, you will never make him pay twice. There is not a court in America that will try you twice for the same crime, let alone commit you if you've already been acquitted on the same charge. Let alone the infinite God, the most loving, gracious, forgiving, just God of the universe. So when Jesus stands before the throne of God and says, I died in his place, it is not on his, the basis of, you, of God's kindness that he's appealing to for your forgiveness. It is not on the basis of his goodness, although he is all those things. He is kind and he is good. He says, Father, I'm appealing to you on the basis of your justice. Because I was forsaken, he must be accepted. Because I am out he can be in. Because I've lost intimacy with you, forsaken, he can now have intimacy with you, access with you. Jesus Christ represents his people, our reference. Anything else is a death sentence. Right now, there's a warrant out for our death. 
because we are guilty. Death owns us. But Jesus Christ came and redeemed us. He paid that debt. He took that debt, which means he holds the receipt. He holds our lives. If you've never said in your life, Father, save me not on the basis of my record, but on Jesus' record. Not on the basis of my works, but on Jesus' works. Jesus' work on the cross for me. You are still dead because you have not gone through Jesus. Only by the Spirit will you see it. Only through Christ will you receive it. And when you see God's love, and when you see his truth in a way that's going to shape you and melt you, then you will experience the comfort and the confidence, and that will lead you to delight. Friends, I, it's my prayer that the flame of God's Holy Spirit will melt your heart towards change. That the Word of God, that's why we study the Word of God. It's why we do community groups. It's why we worship. That the Word of God, His seal, will be impressed, but it will not be impressed unless your heart is soft. So my prayer is that the Word of God and the seal of God will be impressed on you but more so that your heart would be soft, that you would recognize your need for God's Son, and that Spirit would then bring you through His Son so that you would have access and intimacy, that you would delight in the Father. Access. Shall we pray? Let's pray.